the text for this afternoon is once again taken from Ephesians chapter 3. But for this reading, we'll be focusing on the prayer of Paul, focusing on the verses 14 to 19. For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, do you remember when you were first taught to pray? Maybe it was at your bedtime as a small child. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. These words are familiar to us. They are dear to our hearts. They are dear because they are a childlike approach before the throne of grace. They are a sign of a child who is coming humbly before a mighty God, recognizing his power to provide and the need for us to ask him for his provision. Now here in our passage, we see another prayer. Perhaps the words are different, but the attitude is much the same. The Apostle Paul, the author of the letter to the Ephesians, gives the Ephesian church a chance to see two general things by his prayer. An example of how to pray. He says he comes before his father, bowing his knees. Many of you, perhaps as children, have bowed your knees before, the, before your bedside, and perhaps you continue that today. He bows his knees, showing that same childlike humility, reverence, and trust. Now, bowing the knees is not a requirement that he gives for people when they're praying, but it's an example of how to pray. And we can also see how he shows his regard for the church in Ephesus, his love for them, the fact that he cares for them, he's praying for them, and he desires their good. And it's with this attitude that Paul prays. He's coming before the throne of grace. Beloved congregation, we will see that Paul prays for an increase in knowledge and love in the family of God in Ephesus. And first of all, we'll look at the origin of this family, what this family is that he's speaking of. And secondly, we'll focus on the desire of Paul's prayer. And third, the fruit of this desire. The Jews in Paul's day had a very strong sense of family. It was not so much the fact that they felt related to everyone. Rather, it was the fact that they felt a very strong connection to their forefather, Abraham, the one from whom the nation of Israel descended, and the one to whom God gave the promises of the covenant, to be his God and the God of his descendants after him. The Pharisees held this as a badge of honor, they, used it, they even used it in discussions with Jesus to try and prove their superiority. 
This, however, is not the kind of family that Paul is speaking of, although these families have much in common. When Paul, like Jesus, speaks of the family from the Father, he's not simply referring to the people of God descending from Abraham. Yes, these people are physically descended from Abraham and are therefore part of one big family, but that is not what he is using the term family for. Instead, he's referring to something that he spoke of much earlier in the letter to the Ephesians. And he's, spoken, he's speaking in an argument pointing to a different kind of family than that of the Jews. Now, Paul's argument leading into this discussion of family begins with one point, that man by nature is dead in sin. You can see that in chapter 2. However, God has predestined those whom he has chosen before the foundation of the world, as we touched on this morning, to be redeemed through Christ. And so he made those who were dead in sin alive, and he sat them together in the heavenly places with Christ. What an incredible message. Dead in sin and made alive to reign with Jesus Christ. Then he moves on, after having this basic argument, to deal with how we should respond to this amazing news with two statements, beginning with the words, for this reason. You can see the first one in 3 verse 1, and the second one at the beginning of our prayer there. The first one that you find in chapter 3 starts off, for this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me for you. And then he continues. He begins to talk with them in this first section about the grace that they had received. And he takes a moment to point out how he, out of all the apostles, was commissioned to proclaim the mystery of the gospel to the Gentiles. Now, this is a brief but important tangent for him. He starts off with, for this reason, goes on a brief tangent, and then continues again, going back to that original point. But it's an important tangent because it allows the Gentile members of the congregation at Ephesus to see how they relate to the family of God. This mystery of the gospel that had not been explicitly made known to those people in the past was that the Gentiles are fellow heirs with the Jews, members of the same family sharing in the inheritance which is promised to the people of Israel that God will be their God too. Now, in the past, people had to become members of the people of God to be joined into this family, to share in the blessings from that. They had to become Jews and live under Jewish laws and traditions. But now, under Christ, all nations can be drawn in and joined to him, living in the benefits of the riches of the promises of God. Now, imagine for a moment what it would have been like for the Gentiles who are reading this passage. They've tracked with Paul so far. They have seen where his reasoning is going to end, where he starts off talking about man by nature is dead in sin and carries on there. Having been redeemed along with the Jews, they share in the promises. But what a moment it is when Paul confirms that. He states that he bows his knees before the Father from whom the whole family in heaven and on earth is named. They are a part of that family. They are united with them. 
Compare that to the adoption of a child. The child knows that the paperwork is coming through. He knows that this family has chosen him and that this family sees him in a special light. But think about the moment when they have received the paperwork and they say, you are part of our family. What shock and joy would overwhelm him. Tears would stream down his face. This child was fatherless, homeless, and had bleak prospects, but now he has a new life, a fresh start, and a joyous future. What an amazing message for Paul to share. But this is not just limited to to the Ephesians, brothers and sisters. Take a moment to think about this personally. You are Gentiles too. By all rights, you, your grandparents and your great-grandparents, all the way back to your forefathers who were first converted, should not be among those who are called members of the people of God. And yet God, through Christ, has chosen to redeem us and make us his own. He has chosen to adopt us as his children. And now you, too, are a part of something bigger. You are a part of the family of God. As children, we derive our name from our Father. We derive our name from God. And in the ancient world, from the perspective that Paul was writing from, family was everything. The family name was everything. Family defined who you were and from where you derived your identity. It was a special thing. The family itself consisted not just of parents and children, as we find in the world today, but also grandparents and cousins. Your family was your marker of social status. It shaped how you behaved. It shaped your character. It shaped your life. And as family members, you were meant to look out for each other. We read this in 1 Timothy 5 as well. If anyone does not provide for his own especially for those of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Again, in the Old Testament book of Ruth, we see the biblical concept of the kinsman redeemer coming to life. He is the relative who restores or preserves the full community rights of disadvantaged family members, family members who have come on hard times. And we have seen that come to life now in Jesus Christ. God used that family name to lay claim to us, to mark us as his own. He gave us the rights of sons, redeeming us through Jesus Christ. In Christ, believers are now built together under that one name, forming a new structure together. We become, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, a holy temple with the foundation of Christ as the chief cornerstone, where the builder and maker is God. And so, as members who derive our name from God, we are to seek from Him what we need. Take your example from the passage this afternoon and pray to the Father. We derive our name from Him. So, seek from Him what you need. In most families, the Father provides and cares for His children. How much more would our Father in heaven provide and care for His children? We can ask and labor earnestly, trusting that he will provide. Now, having established that as the foundation, Paul moves on 
to speak of the desire of his prayer. It's at this point that we reach the substance, what exactly Paul asks for. The prayer focuses on two main things. First, that we'll be strengthened through the Spirit, and second, that Christ will dwell in our hearts through faith. Many people, when thinking of being strengthened with might, think of the physical aspect. A picture immediately springs to mind of someone working out and daily getting stronger, perhaps not Arnold Schwarzenegger strong, but physically fit. However, being strengthened with might refers not to physical strength, but to the power that's available to believers. Already in chapter 1, they received a reminder of the power available to them. Now being reminded that the power described as the same power with which, Christ, with which God raised Christ from the dead in chapter 1, they are again reminded to look to the source of that power. God, who is all-powerful, is willing to give believers everything they need in this life. He will provide for their material needs according to his good pleasure. Yes, but more importantly, he will provide for their souls. He'll provide for the inner man. Now the outer man is what everyone else can see. When someone spends time working out, putting on makeup and jewelry, or otherwise trying to improve their appearance, they are making themselves pleasing to the eye. The outer man is visible to all, but the inner man that he speaks of is hidden from the public gaze. The inner man is what Paul is calling us to pay attention to, our inner life, and how, or might be better said, by whom this inner life is maintained and grown. Those to whom Paul is writing are, both Jews and Gentiles, members of God's family. As members of God's family, they have a new life dwelling in them. Their inner selves, which he before described as being dead in sin, now have been made alive. This inner self might not appear different on the outside, like you would see with somebody working out or putting on makeup and jewelry, but it's a radical change all the same. Because of that, the prayer that is being made here is that the controlling influence that caused that first radical change now continues to radically change their lives. Immediately, the question, is, uh, the question arises, how? How is it possible for us to experience this change? To begin with, we need to look at the source of this controlling influence, that source being God. God is the one who grants us, according to the riches of his glory, what we need. And so Paul prays for the one who has shown himself to be the source of that power, to impart that might to us. In recognizing God as the source of his pa- this power, we, as readers of this passage, are encouraged to look for him, to him for what we need. We are not just to rely on the prayers of others, on the prayers of ministers or elders or those who are looking out for us, but also to earnestly desire it for ourselves. So not to settle into stagnation, the daily grind of doing prayers and devotions out of routine, but the genuine desire to see God, to pray to him, to ask what we need of him, 
and to understand more about him. And as our power to do this comes from God, this becomes a reality in our own lives. We can see that it is the gift of God not only for us to begin well, but also for us to continue to advance. God does not just start us on the path, but he carries us on and brings us to completion. This prayer is meant to bring this recognition into our lives that we may find continued growth in strength in the one who is the source of our faith in the first place. He who has infinite power also has an infinite supply by which he can strengthen us. And he does so by his spirit who dwells in us intimately. But also brings us to the second hope of Paul's prayer. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now that Christ may dwell, some people look at this phrase as a chance to separate Christ and the spirit. See, they say the Spirit comes first, and then Christ comes. I mean, create a division there. But we must recognize when we reach this point that we cannot separate Christ and the Spirit for two reasons. First, we need the Spirit to receive Christ. And second, we cannot obtain the Spirit without Christ. The idea that we can have the Spirit first for a while and then Christ establishes his dwelling in them is mistaken. Likewise, the idea that you can be a Christian but need a special outpouring of the Holy Spirit, that you need to have some special anointing in the way of spiritual gifts after having received Christ, that's also wrong. As we read in Romans 8 verse 9, but you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. No, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. You see, it's by the Spirit here that Christ dwells in us. This means that the order that is given in this passage is, not one, is one of logical succession, not one of time. We need one so that we may have the other. If you do not have the Spirit of Christ, you do not belong to Christ. If you do have Christ, you have the Spirit. And Christ dwells in our hearts. He has taken up residence there. It's not a temporary thing, but he remains there. It's like staying in a rental space for six months as opposed to staying in a home. The one is a house. You may not unpack all of your boxes and you may be hesitant regarding what you hang on the walls, but when you move into what some may call a forever home, you settle in, you put down roots. The house becomes a home. Likewise, Christ dwells in the hearts of believers. He's not here today and then gone tomorrow. He's made his home there. He's intimately involved. And our connection with him is through faith. It is this faith that Paul prays the Lord Jesus works in the hearts of believers. Christ, as the source of this faith, supplies us infinitely according to the riches of his glory as often as we seek it or ask it of him. He strengthens and renews the inner man, radically changing our lives, leading us in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake by his Holy Spirit. And this radical change in the inner man is not without effect. As we are transformed, 
we are led more and more to see the result of this prayer in our lives. It is this Christ, this Christ who is Paul's passion. And it is this Christ that I, as pastor of a church, have the privilege of proclaiming to you. It is my hope and prayer that during my time in service of you, that it is Christ who will be at the center of my ministry, just as he was at the center of Paul's. For we need him. We need his love, and we need to love him. He has done so much for us. We can see that in his compassion to those around him already in the New Testament, knowing that the same compassion and love he showed to the sick, to the weak, to the downtrodden, the blind and the lame, the wretched sinner and the humble penitent is the same love and compassion that he shows to us. But more than that, we can see it in him loving us so much that he died for us. The immense weight of the prospect of the suffering that he was to face pressed out of him the drops of bloody sweat in the Garden of Gethsemane. The horror of that cost caused him to cry out to the Father, if there is any way, let this cup pass from me. And yet, there was no other way. And so, in this love, he pressed on. Not unwillingly, not reluctantly, but determinedly. We read that Christ who, for the joy set before him, that is to save those whom he chose to love, to live with them eternally, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Can you imagine such love, brothers and sisters? Can you wrap your mind around such a love that would embrace Jews and Gentiles such as us, while we were yet enemies? It seems hard to wrap our minds around, doesn't it? This is what is proclaimed to you Sunday after Sunday from the pulpit, and this is what we're called to believe and we're called to love. Love, that is the fruit that we see. That is how we know our belief, our faith is real. For if we could have a faith that could move mountains, it would still be empty and hollow without love. So Paul calls us to be rooted and grounded in love. Like a tree needs roots equal in size to its branches to support it, weathering all kinds of storms, we are rooted in our love for Christ and in the love of Christ, weathering whatever weather may come. Like a building needs to be grounded on unshakable foundations, to support the structure, we need to be grounded in love. As we find ourselves being more firmly rooted and grounded, we will find ourselves fulfilling the purpose of this grounding. We will see ourselves living with the results of our rootedness in Christ. More and more we will begin to grasp what is the width, the length, the depth, and the height of Christ, just as all the saints in the past have. Comprehending he says here, comprehending the width and the depth and the love of Christ. And this embraces not just purely mental aspect. It embraces not just purely thinking about it and knowing about it. But it embraces the full person, the heart, the will, and the emotions. 
the realization that Christ has done all this and he has done all this for me. For our belief isn't just rooted in our love because then it would be fickle. Our love waxes and wanes, but our love is rooted in the all-encompassing love of Christ. As such, even though we do not have full comprehension, we can rest in the assurance of his love, the assurance that rests in the knowledge of who he is and what he does for us, knowing that his love is wider, longer, deeper, and higher than we can ever imagine. There will be times when, this, when our understanding fades, when we'll fail to see how God could possibly be working through our current life situation. There will also be times when the light gets brighter and brighter as the gospel is proclaimed from house to house and from the pulpit. When our understanding grows, and it seems that the curtain is being pulled back from the depth of the riches of the love of Christ. But we can look forward to a day when we can see more than this mere glimpse. We have hope for a better day. Even when we feel like, even when we feel the warmth of his love in this broken world, we have only a full, small sense of its fullness. We see dimly as through a mirror made of polished bronze. But there will come a day when this small taste that we have will be fully revealed. The curtain will be thrown back and we will see and experience the love of God from face, face to face. Now we know in part. Then we will fully know, seeing the love of God in Christ being filled with all the fullness of God, the riches and blessing of being righteous before him. Now let us move forward during the years, sharing this wonderful message of grace, of the transforming work of God in the lives of believers, and the love that overflows to those, those around. And as we do so, let us revel in getting to know more of the love and fullness of Christ, the fullness of of the Father before whom we can bow the knee to his glory. Amen.